0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Last episode, if you didn't catch it, go back, listen to it now. It was part one of my debate with Bill McKibben. I had a little bit of commentary before and then a bunch of commentary after. And it was about the the first 40 minutes of that debate, which were our more theoretical segments, which were 10 minutes apiece. So there were four 10-minute segments. Bill opened, I countered. He countered, I countered, and definitely listen to that episode. Today is going to be the more dynamic portion of it where there was a the cross-examination. I cross-examined him about nuclear. He cross-examined me about um, his various uh, claims that he says are scientific, and then we go into a bunch of five-minute segments, and then we go into the audience question and answer. This was probably the most enjoyable part of the debate, for me, I really like the opportunity to go back and forth uh, more quickly to deal with uh, to deal with the claims in smaller chunks. Since I think in ten minutes, it's easy to get just over- claim claim overload. It's easier for things to be dodged. So I like I like this format. I hope you do too. Uh, in terms of any thoughts beforehand, I don't I don't have too many. I'll I'll share some thoughts at the end. And I'll just reiterate the thought from the last episode, which is whenever you hear either one of us, a really good question to ask is, what conclusion are we arguing for? When you're, when you're evaluating, is this a good argument? Is this a bad argument? You have to know the destination. And the destination is the conclusion. And, and one thing I, I tried to do in the debate was, was be very clear about my conclusion and be very clear about Bill McKibben's conclusion. And I think that as you'll see in this part of it i really really try to press this issue and i think it was remarkable how hard i had to press and that that conclusion was never never really acknowledged i mean listen to it for yourself see if you agree but i think i think that was notable and it's it's really important since ultimately at the end of the day the reason i wanted this debate is because this man argued for a conclusion that i think if taken seriously if implemented would destroy the lives of billions of people. Uh, but not just that. To the extent he's regarded as as a valuable voice at the table even, I think we're going in the direction of a very, very bad conclusion. So it's not an issue of he's arguing for a poisonous dose of medicine and yet if we take half as much, it'll be good. No, he's, it's poison all the way. And, and the fact that I, I think he's not willing to openly embrace what that conclusion means is is a good indication that in fact is a is a poisonous conclusion. I will not prejudice you anymore listen to the debate let me know what you think you can always email me at alex at alexepstein.com and I will talk to you a little bit on the other side.
1: Ladies and gentlemen we now have uh, the opportunity for the two participants to cross-examine each other Uh, Each, by agreement, the two participants have have agreed that uh, they will each have two minutes. Uh, After the cross-examination, we will go into a period of uh, two sets of rebuttals. But uh, Mr. Epstein, you may start first. You have two minutes. Good
2: question. Um, Okay, Bill, you mentioned excitement about the future of energy, and, and two technologies I think are particularly exciting that don't emit CO2 are hydroelectric and nuclear. Now, unfortunately, the movement that you're part of, the environmentalist movement, is the biggest uh, movement for shutting down dams, and the biggest movement for opposing nuclear power. And I know you say nuclear power is expensive, but it actually was very cheap in the 70s before that movement made it expensive. So I'm curious, why don't, no, no, here's the question. Will you come out and champion nuclear power, given that it is the only, the one CO2-free source of power that can scale worldwide?
3: A, environmentalists are not opposed to all dams. Some of us are working hard, say, in my community in Vermont, to build new dams and turbines on rivers. Second, nuclear power, we have no idea whether or not it's uh, going to play a role until we have a serious price on energy. Once we, at the moment, remember the fact that uh, alone among industries, the fossil fuel industry gets to put out its waste for free. That explains the tremendous market failure we see around us. M- my guess is that fossil fuel will play, I mean, that nuclear power will play next to no role going forward, simply because it's too expensive. To uh, and and it's not me who says this. And Jeffrey Immelt, the the chairman of GE uh, said this summer, and this is a company with a large nuclear exposure, said it's just too expensive going forward. Wind and things are doing things much more cheaply now, so nuclear power is not where the future lies.
2: Yeah, I completely uh, disagree with that. It's it's a non-intermittent source, so we know So the good
3: news about intermittency is that we're learning all kinds of ways to deal with it. Uh, And and this is what's exciting about as we go into these new technologies. It's exactly what engineers are doing all over the place. I can show you a list of the five new technologies dealing precisely with the intermittency of wind and sun, all the ways that we're figuring out how to integrate them into grids, how to make them work.
1: Mr. McKibben, thank you very much. Now, Mr. McKibben, you have two minutes minutes. to cross-examine.
3: Absolutely. You were saying that I'd provided no real evidence of anything. Um, um, Do you have any
2: reason to think that the uh, Arctic hasn't melted? Yeah, I have a quote about that I wanted to mention later. So when you talk about the issue of—you often use the terminology of unprecedented— So, with things like the Arctic, sometimes we only have a couple decades worth of satellite data. So, there's a great quote in the 1920s talking about how they're going up to the Arctic, the Arctic is receding. So, your sense is
3: that the Arctic had melted in the 1920s. Okay. Okay, so do you have
2: any. wait, Wait, can I continue answering that? Also, there's the issue of my focus here is not is there no changing in the world at all? I don't believe that the planet is somehow inherently perfect. I think actually we need to perfect the planet for human life. And so what that means is that if you're in a general warming trend, which was started naturally in the 1800s, it's not that surprising that more ice would melt. I think it's very misrepresentative, and I don't think it's fair to call it breaking uh, the Arctic. And if you cite a bunch of studies based on climate prediction models that can't predict climate, I'm not convinced.
3: I see. Um, do you have some reason to think that the uh, uh, that the rate of deluge and extreme rainfall hasn't increased 20% in?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a very hotly disputed
3: issue in terms of. Well, if it's hotly disputed, don't you have to give us some evidence of well, that? You're, you're,
2: so you're no, no, you you you're you're giving no specific evidence. You're making an I assertion. So please,
1: please let him finish. This. Okay. Okay. No, I'm sorry.
2: So I mean, for instance, Richard Lindzen of MIT, among many others, have theories about how um, you know a general warming will lessen the temperature difference. Does Dr.
3: Lindzen have any reason to think that 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 deluge hasn't? Gone up 20 okay. percent. Could you please let? Him. Well, he's filibustering here. <laughs> Mr. Epstein, Mr. Epstein, you have 15 seconds to complete. Yeah. So the anyway,
2: response. Um, just to try to explain it, um, the difference between the equator and the pole will lead to less, um, less severe storms. That's a general theory. What you're giving is an oversimplification to an audience who doesn't know the data, doesn't know the disagreements, and it's unfair. You're not okay. a scientist, and you shouldn't do that.
1: Thank you very much, gentlemen. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we now have, go into the rebuttal phase of the uh, debate. Uh, Each of the uh, participants will have five minutes each on uh, two sets of rebuttals. Uh, Mr. Epstein, you please go first.
2: All right. So let's, I wanna talk about one one issue which you can look up and I think validate easily which, which shows the severity of, I think, what Bill is proposing. And again, I I can't let this go. The whole reason that I called for this debate is that Bill McKibben said that fossil fuels should be virtually illegal. And I believe that that would ruin my life, that it would ruin your life, and that it would ruin billions of lives around the world. And the only reason I believe that is because I believe in the power of energy. And from everything I know, fossil fuel energy happens to be the most important at this point in time. Now, my prediction is definitely that sometime in the future, nuclear energy, for various technical reasons, will predominate. But that's many decades away. So I might prefer nuclear. It doesn't really matter what I prefer. What matters is what people can produce now and what people need now. And the number one thing we need in life is food. And here's the facts about food. The world today has 7 billion people, and they're basically better fed than any world population in history. But this is a precarious thing. Not because um, modern agriculture is inherently precarious, but because without fossil fuels, this whole system would collapse. Fossil fuels are something as good, this whole system would collapse. In the 1970s, in 1970, just to give you a point of comparison. Um, many people were forecasting that with a population of about 3.8 billion people, hundreds of millions of people would starve. There was just this problem of world hunger. What are we going to do about it? You know, people are going to die. And what what solved the problem of world hunger? Well, it was a combination of genetic engineering and fossil fuels. In particular, what you had is oil-powered machinery made agriculture much more productive so you could have a harvester that could uh, that could um, reap like the equivalent of 500,000 loaves of bread a day, and at the same time, you had oil-based transportation that, as I mentioned before, could take crops from you know that could take crops to areas that are suffering. You also had a lot more farmland that was in circulation because with transportation, you know, someone could grow something one place and transport it 3,000 miles away, even if there wasn't nearly the local uh, demand. And then there was fertilizer produced by natural gas. Now, there's no question at all, leaving aside someone making up that they have a solution to doing this without fossil fuels, we've had 10,000 years of trying to do agriculture without fossil fuels and, or something just as good. And what we had was periodic starvation and famine and suffering over and over and over. And only once we figured out how to create abundant, affordable energy and devote it to producing crops, only then did, could people live in large numbers and not be uh, afraid of, of starving. So when Bill talks about, like in vague terms, exciting uh, new technologies, certainly an industry I follow a lot, there's no solar or wind replacement for a combine I mean, these aren't, again, these are not, there's nothing proven about these at all. They, they're, always, they're, always the tech, they're always the next technology, and they've been around for at least 75 years apiece. There's always great studies about how they're going to be the future, but in reality, they're not going to feed people. So what we need, what the world needs, is more fossil fuels. The evidence we have is not just that fossil fuels aren't ruining our planet, they're making it much better. Climate-related deaths are going down. And so what we need is many, many more fossil fuels so that people can eat and they can have food. So if, if Bill McKibben came here tonight and cited a bunch of studies and said, my conclusion is we should ban 95% of food, you would say that's crazy. But he's saying we should ban 95% of fossil fuels, which is the food of food. Without fossil fuels, we simply billions of people will starve. There is no evidence to the contrary, and so to cavalierly talk about that is is just is really uh, I, I won't end that sentence, but I think it's really, really irresponsible because you've got again these are real these are real lives. These are people who, if we do the wrong thing, they will die, and ultimately. You know, you will suffer too, but these people will die. And one thing we know is that modern industrial fossil fuel agriculture saves billions of lives. And what Bill is saying would take them away.
3: All right. Let's return here to where we began with my very first point, which was that in the past, fossil fuel has been a boon, and now it represents a risk. The risks, in fact, they're more than risks, they're certainties, as outlined in one piece of evidence after another, are unrefuted. So let's think about what we're going to do going into the future. Um, I was glad that we finally got down to some brass tacks here. Alex said, one thing we need in life is food that we're better fed than any population in history. Uh, and that that's precarious because of the lack of fossil, because of someone might want to take away fossil fuel. In fact, as I pointed out, it's precarious because we're having very strange weather. Six of the last 11 years, without any restriction on fossil fuel, we've eaten more than we've grown on this planet. The good news is that we're figuring out other ways, as usual, to do these things. Technology marches forward, and technology is not always high-tech. Often it uh, feels like lower tech to us, people learning how to use new techniques in remarkably efficient ways. My last book, Deep Economy, or last book, Earth, had a, a, a long list of the really exciting research uh, showing that grain yields and other yields of crops are actually doing very well. Let me update some of that. Um, um, I'm looking here at data from uh, 2012, uh, recent study, um, Uh, Recent studies from Switzerland with 154 growing seasons worth of data on various crops grown on rain-fed and irrigated land in the U.S. and elsewhere found that organic yields were essentially equal at this point to Uh, uh, yields from conventional farming. Now, it takes more people doing it. We're not going to be able to get by with 1% of Americans on the farm, which is what we have now, i.e., half as many people as we have in prison. We will not need to go back to 50% of Americans on the farm like we had a long time ago, but a few percentage more would make it a lot easier. Um, um, the, um, The questions about food have to be thought about in the context that I provided and that no one has refuted in any way. That if we keep doing what we're doing, grain yields are going to fall 20 to 40 percent in the course of the century simply because it's getting too hot. That's what the agronomists tell us. There were two other points, I think, of clash here. One, I was accused of misrepresenting things by talking about ocean acidification. I said that the oceans had become 30% more acid, and that's unrefuted. Um, That doesn't mean that they have turned to acid. It means that they are headed in that direction. It's not me who's saying this. Uh, The head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said recently that ocean acidification was, in her words, global warming's evil twin, a very serious situation. She likened it to osteoporosis of the oceans because it's thinning the shells of all the creatures at the bottom of the marine food chain. Alex finally cited an actual scientist, albeit in passing without any real reference. He called on Richard Lindzen, who's always been the one scientist that uh, uh, climate deniers and skeptics have talked about. It's worth knowing that though he did good work a long time ago, a long time ago was a long time ago. The New York Times uh, recently talked about the fact that his Theories about clouds and the equator that Alex cited have been widely discredited. Today, most mainstream researchers consider Dr. Lindzen's theory discredited. He. Uh, uh He published a paper in 2009 offering more support for his case, but once again, scientists identified errors, including a failure to account for known inaccuracies in satellite measurements. Dr. Lindzen acknowledged that the 2009 paper contained some stupid mistakes. It was just embarrassing, he said in an interview. The technical details of satellite measurement are really sort of grotesque. Um, 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 This is not cutting edge science, and it does not come close to refuting the almost endless set of citations that I've been giving you all along. If I sound just the tiniest bit uh, disgruntled here, I apologize for it, but it's because I put an enormous amount of work into trying to understand these questions and bring you the evidence that you need, and just to have someone say, oh well, evidence is crazy, just go Google whatever you want and figure it out, doesn't amount to a debate. It amounts to a kind of capitulation. And uh, uh, it is a very hard case to argue in Alex's defense because all you have to do is look at the world around you and see the change that's now happening. Not 100 years ago when fossil fuel was doing us some good, but now when it represents a grave risk.
2: So a little over 10 years ago, uh, I was you. I would have definitely come to this debate. I was very interested in this issue. I was certainly worried um, about this issue. I didn't know much about energy uh, back then. And if I, think, if I, think, I think if I had come here, I would, have been, I would have been really confused by what Bill was saying, because I wouldn't really know what I could trust. And in particular, I wouldn't know what is really a proven fact. What is speculation? And what is misrepresentation? And it's, it's very hard to know. And that's why my goal at the beginning was to try to give you the big picture. Uh, Bill mentioned that all we need to do is look around us. And that is exactly, exactly what we do not just need to do. What we need to do is look at the full picture. Look at people in faraway parts of the world. Look at the long term. Look at the trends. And that's why I tried to show you a very dramatic trend that fossil fuels are making the planet a better place to live for human beings. That has gone unrefuted. The aggregate evidence is that the planet is a much better place for human beings. And it's not, and I can explain exactly why. Energy is our capacity to do work, to be productive. The more energy we can use, the farther away we get from manual labor, the more productive we can be, the more wealth we can create, the more we can adapt to the world around us. The reason why the climate is safer, besides the fact that it's not nearly as scary uh, as Bill says, besides the fact that the proven science shows a very mild warming, and it doesn't make sense to attribute every out-of-context problem you can find to 2.5 degrees Celsius warming in seven years. The basic fact is that technology powered by fossil fuels has made life so much better for so many people. The point that I've made, my my own frustration, is that I've made the point repeatedly that the reason I'm here is because Bill says that our leading source of energy should be practically illegal. Now, if Bill was a farm entrepreneur who said that he could defy all of history and revolutionize agriculture. Without false fuels, I'd say, fantastic. Go for it. Like, I, I approve of it. I love new ideas. If Bill said, I have a way of overcoming the fact that it's super, super hard to get energy from the sun and the wind as a standalone source, which it's never really been done on a large scale. It's super, super hard because the sun and the wind are very inconsistent, and they're very diluted. But I've found a way. To concentrate all that energy cheaply without tons of money on infrastructure, and I found a way to store it really cheaply which didn't previously exist. If Bill came with that and he could prove it, I would not be debating Bill. I would be writing a story about him as a hero. Because heroes are people who actually create things for real people in the world. Um, but it is not at all heroic. It's not at all idealistic to take the energy that people need, to take the best most affordable, most abundant source of energy we have and to call the people who produce it uh, what Bill called public enemy number one and again, to effectively make it illegal. If fossil fuels are effectively illegal, practical energy is practically illegal. That's what all the evidence says. Anyone can make up stuff about the future. Um, Most new ideas that people have about the future are wrong. So the way that you... The way that you can prove things is either you can show a very clear trend in the past, or you can make a model that actually works. But what Bill is saying goes against all the trends in the past, which is that fossil fuels are absolutely necessary to make our lives better. And he says 100 years ago, that Chinese person who just got their first light bulb, their first refrigerator, that's not 100 years ago. That's today. And with Bill's policy, they would be out uh, doing manual labor right now. You know if we had if we had followed that that kind of policy so what I want you to just think is that there are two risks here the risks that come with continuing to use fossil fuels and there there's risks with everything and then the risks of not using fossil fuels the risks of doing what bill says what he still won't own up to but which he needs to own up to which is making fossil fuels essentially illegal and We know that the world we have has been made possible by abundant, affordable energy. We know that we're safer than ever from the climate. We know that all of this will disappear without um, abundant, affordable energy. And we know that doing what Bill does, everything we know says that will be no more affordable, abundant energy, which again, I'm sorry to say, is suicide, even if you call it science.
3: All right, we've almost come to the end of this evening's events, and many thanks to all who made it possible. Um, At one point in our history, fossil fuel was a great boon. And that's good to realize. It's in fact how I began this debate. At another point in history, it represents an enormous risk. In fact, as I pointed out, and not by providing studies from some person that you're going to go Google and find that it's not true, but providing hard evidence of exactly what's going on. The acidification of the oceans, the melt of the Arctic, the Increase in atmospheric moisture leading to catastrophic floods, the huge cuts in yield of uh, 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 our crops as temperatures warm. All you had to do was look at the Midwest this summer and see what happened. The risk to other species, extinction rates of seventy percent. The risk to coastal cities. Uh, the risk to forests as we increase the uh, the quadruple the rate of forest fire. The risk to public health. The four hundred thousand people a year already dying from the effects of climate change, the four and a half million people a year already dying from the effects of fossil fuel, the risk to economies, the the, uh, the 11% reductions in GDP forecast for the poorest countries on earth, that's the reason that those governments, unlike Alex, are pressing extremely hard in the UN for deep cuts in emissions, they're the ones who are pushing hardest for it. Alex didn't even talk about the kind of philosophical points that I managed to make in this debate. The fact that there is a great risk to our liberty and our freedom going forward because we run the risk, and in fact it's probably more than a risk of, of, of really kind of heavy-ended responses to emergencies. Look what happens just in the last week when trouble on that scale arrives. And the risk to democracy that comes from the power of the fossil fuel industry. He said that I had failed to provide any evidence that renewable energy could do any work. In fact, we talked about what was going on in very particular places, that the Germans under a conservative government have now said that they'll have between half and two-thirds of their power coming from renewable energy uh, by 2025. That's a remarkable accomplishment. It's especially remarkable when you think about Germany. Foggy, Wagnerian, Munich is north of Montreal. Uh, Germany does not have California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Florida to help it bulk up its statistics, we do. Uh, uh, we talked about how this was happening in the developing world as well, that the Chinese are the leading users now of renewable energy around the world, that 25% of Chinese when they take a shower at night, that the power, that the hot water comes from solar arrays on the roof. Um, technology powered by fossil fuel did make life better and it is now causing grave problems, so it is up to us in our generation not merely to keep repeating what people have done in the past but to make the transition to something else. One would think that that's what people engaged in industrial progress would be for, that they would understand the need for innovation and especially that they would stop protecting an industry that is the only industry that does not have to pay to throw out its waste. If you're wondering at this point how you can help with this process. I hope that you'll join us at 350.org in this fight. All around the country now we're launching this big campaign. You'll find it at math.350.org. And one of the things it urges is for colleges and universities to divest their stock from fossil fuel companies, as once they did from companies implicated in the apartheid regime in South Africa. Uh, that's because we need to put pressure on these companies so they stop blocking the path. At some point, they will make the decision to become energy companies, and when they do, they will be a valuable part of this transition. But at the moment, they stand with their money athwart progress. They're the ones trying to keep us addicted to 18th century technology instead of moving forward fast. I make Alex, to the contrary, no claim to be heroic in any way. Um, I don't think that's what this is about. I think it's about the calm, rational, evidence-based discussion of where we are right now. Um, um, And where we are right now is in a world of trouble, but in a world of trouble that we can get out of if we move with real vigor and real dispatch. The next few decades will be a test of just how good an adaptation the big brain really was. I'm confident that if we're not fearful and and, and shrink from this challenge, that we can make some real progress. I never said, and this is the last thing I wanna say, I never said that any of this was going to be easy. It is not. It is going to be extremely difficult. The only thing more difficult will be trying to survive on the world that I described, the world that's already starting to come into being as a result of fossil fuel. Thank you. Thank you very much. We would now like to
1: take questions. Uh, There's a microphone here in this aisle. If you will please come up to the microphone. Do you want us to stand up here? Yes, please stand up here at the podium and uh, respond to the questions. Uh, We will have time for about six questions. The structure of this part is that you will direct your questions specifically to one of the speakers. Uh, That speaker will have two minutes to respond, and the other speaker will have a minute uh, to, uh, uh, to respond to that. So the first uh, questioner, please state your name and, ask, and direct your question. Uh, hello, my name is Lucas Spanger. I'm a student in computer science. And um, I'm, my question is for Alex. I'm kind of shocked that you, Bill, did not mention at all that these fossil fuels are finite, like these will run out. How do you respond to the fact that the scenario you, you, you give us with people dying, or, like people not it, cutting down by 95%, all the negatives that you say that will occur, how do you respond to that occurring 300 or 400 years in the future when we use all these finite resources?
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the question. So I just want to make clear that ener- so energy is a process. Um, when we talk about what the best kind of energy is, all that means is that it's the best kind of energy. It's the most affordable, abundant right now, or for some foreseeable timetable. That's what I'm saying with fossil fuels. For right now, and for let's say the next couple decades, it's absolutely essential. If you ban it. And, and I'm not saying don't use other things. Of course, go for other things. I love, as I said, I love nuclear. I think it's an amazing technology. But banning is what I'm against. So don't make it illegal to use the best thing at any given time. As long as it's legal to use the best thing at any given time, then what you get is what's called what I call progressive energy, which means you find better and better ways. Um, And I think the evidence is very, very strongly against solar and wind. Uh, I think the only reason those, I have nothing against them personally. I would love, and they're good for things like heating hot water, or solar is anyway. But um, I think in general, the trend is that the best sources of energy are ones that are really, really condensed. And nuclear power has a million times the energy density of uh, coal. So what's really striking is that the environmentalist movement refuses to come out vigorously in favor of it. I don't mean I don't mean I don't mean mildly or oh I don't know. I mean this is the only technology in the world that can scale on a world level. And so if you think this is the crisis of a lifetime, Bill, I think right now you should come out and tell the world I support scalable nuclear energy. And I'll, I'm happy to show you the evidence from the 70s if you haven't studied that. And I think if, then, you'll learn, then you should really support it. And if you don't, and if you keep letting environmentalists shut down hydroelectric dams, then, you don't, then it's not really about CO2. It seems like you're against all the practical sources of energy.
3: The, the, uh, I don't know quite how that responds to that question, but I will, I'll try. Um, um, we're not actually going to run out of fossil fuel in time. Um, We're finding too much as we go around, and enough to destroy the atmosphere or the climate before we run out. Uh, If we did run out, we'd actually, we would have long since have moved on to other things, and necessity would have been the mother of invention. We're not gonna get that easy out this time. We're gonna have to decide to do this before things happen. Uh, We're not going to do nuclear power on a large scale, simply for no other reason then it's incredibly expensive. It comes, obviously, with all kinds of other problems, too. But the simple disqualifying one, as the head of GE, not me, said this summer, is that it is too expensive when you compete with things like
4: wind.
2: With regulations created by the environmentalist movement. Our
1: next question.
4: My name is Stephen Horton. Um, my questions for Bill. Um, first, I really respect both of you um, for different reasons, and um, one thing I do not respect is a uh, lack of integrity. Um, Bill, I don't know if you understand what, what a logical fallacy is, but many of your arguments tonight were riddled with logical fallacies, and um, most most of them were akin to. If global warming, or since global warming is happening, uh, the number of pirates is decreasing. Or since global warming is happening, the number of strippers is going up. Um, I, I know, I know. But, but you, did, you did make the argument that since global warming is happening, the uh, grain production is decreasing. And I, 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 actually, from- I actually work in sustainable agriculture, so I know a little about that.
3: Yeah, I quoted from agronomists explaining that as the temperature rises, we're taking plants, which after all evolved in the Holocene like us, out of the range at which they really thrive. And we're making it too hot for things to grow at their best. That's why we now think that each in degree increase in global average temperature from this point on should cut grain yields about 10%. That's Battisti and Naylor in Science uh, 2009.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, about agriculture, I think it's, it's just important, again, to take real long-term trends. Um, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as modern agriculture was revolutionizing the world, people repeatedly did studies saying, quote-unquote, studies saying, this isn't going to work. And I'm really glad we didn't listen to them. But more, the real point is don't take away our freedom. Don't take away our freedom to use the best sources of energy in the name of climate prediction models that don't predict climate or out-of-context studies.
1: Next question, please.
5: Hi, my name is Jesse Waxman. I'm an environmental science and policy major. Um, my question is for you, Alex. Um, so basically what we've been talking about tonight is a lot of the ethics of fossil fuel use in the grand scale, so global warming, climate change, um, which is great, and it's definitely an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, but one of the problems with addressing looking at this from a co- climate change perspective is that finding the specifics Um, case examples can sometimes be difficult. So what I want to ask is something a little more local um, about the ethics of fossil fuel use. Um, When you have, when you're burning fossil fuels, you're releasing VOCs and other toxins into the atmosphere, um, which affects local communities. It affects public health. It affects the economy. um, And fossil fuel use really can't be decoupled from fossil fuel production. Things like mountaintop removal, things like hydraulic fracturing. Um, With mountaintop removal, you have grand increases in cancer rates, in childhood asthma, in a lot of these really bad um, widespread epidemic diseases um, at the local level. Um, With hydraulic fracturing, you can have um, water contamination, which I realize is debated, but you also have increased VOCs, increased levels of carbon dioxide, which have led to increased um, hospital emissions, increased childhood asthma, increased cardiovascular disease and pulmonary diseases. Um, so my question is, considering the practicality of using fossil fuels, looking at the local level, what are the ethics, um, and what does I guess, your side think about the ethics of the localized impacts of fossil fuel use?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a really important issue of, you no, know, you're, you're trying to get a benefit from a source of energy, and of course, you don't want to do it in a way that violates someone else's rights. So the question is, how do you know when someone's rights are being violated? And part of it is certainly that you have to be really, really objective about the science. So um, looking into many of the studies you mentioned, I, I think some of them have some validity. I think a lot of them uh, do not. For instance, the whole outcry over hydraulic fracturing as a technology contaminating groundwater, uh, I think is, is completely, uh, completely wrong. Now. Well, part, part of the context is you always want to minimize pollution, but you have to take it in the context of you're minimizing pollution for a purpose, which is so that individuals can lead the, the best lives possible. So, for example, when man invented fire, you wouldn't say, oh, you shouldn't be able to use fire because it's getting smoke in your child's lungs. Even though it is getting smoke, and you would rather that it not get smoke, the point is, that you absolutely need this fire to live. And so the context is, it's you, you can't really consider the smoke pollution. Whereas, say, in a modern context, we can prevent the vast majority of harmful smoke in a cheap way. And therefore, I think that should be defined as pollution. So it's, it's a contextual issue. I would just say overall, based on my reading of the evidence and based on what I talked about tonight, the absolute necessity of this form of energy for the next several decades. Um, the, the issue is how to minimize pollution, but the idea of making it illegal due to pollution would be the same as banning fire because of smoke. So
3: one of the reasons that it's been, um, it's been really good to watch communities that have been impacted by fossil fuel come together with people working on climate change and people in affected areas like mountaintop removal areas. It's been good to see that kind of coalition of interest building and it's because people realize that fossil fuel actually is dirty all along the chain. There's nothing made up about the percentage of kids who come down with asthma when they live near a coal-fired power plant, for instance. As we move forward, one of the virtues of these new technologies that we did not get to talk about much tonight, because we were focused on climate change, one of the virtues is that they're cleaner in lots of other ways too, uh, cleaner and less dangerous. I mean, I have solar panels all over the top of my house. Uh, you know, uh, I suppose theoretically a terrorist could take an interest in them and climb up on my roof and smash them with a hammer. And and if he did, I I would have a problem, but it wouldn't be the kind of ramifying crisis that we get. Similarly, you know, um, when we, um, well, when we have a kind of, when we have a solar spill, we sort of call it a sunny day. I mean, um, 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 we're moving in a better direction now.
1: Okay, next question, please.
5: My name is Rika, and I wanted to thank you guys for coming out to do this debate tonight. And my question is for Alex. Um, you mentioned that uh, the energy with fossil fuels is a lot more affordable today than renewable energy, and like obviously that's true. We can see that, but the the infrastructure and like the development of the technology. For the fossil fuels was put in place a long time ago. So that's why it's cheaper today. Is there any evidence that, like, if it was produced today or if uh, renewable energy was um, developed already, that it'd still be more expensive than fossil fuels?
2: Uh, yeah, so renewable is kind of a dicey classification because it, it blends together hydroelectric, which is an extremely, extremely practical form of energy and valuable form of energy that, as I mentioned, the environmentalist movement has repeatedly, repeatedly attacked, even though it generates no CO2. So if you go to the Sierra Club website, their list of victories includes a list of dams that they shut down. The real issue here and the thing that Bill is advocating strongly is uh, is solar and wind. And the, the basic issues with those don't have to deal um, with the nature of, uh, like some artificial advantage fossil fuels have. The reason is that they're, they're fundamentally intermittent, which means they don't come in in a reliable way. So either you need a backup or a storage system. And the way it works in basically every case is you have a backup, and the backup is almost always fossil fuels. So if we take Texas, for example, um, they have wind turbines with a very high rating But they only count on them in, I think, for something like nine percent of their electric, nine percent of their capacity, I should say. And the rest of the time, what happens is they're backed up by natural gas. I don't know the situation exactly in Vermont, but this is this is almost always uh, the situation. So what happens is, when the wind is blowing, you can say, oh, we did, you know, you know, we're being green, we got some energy from it. And what happens is, then the get when you get some wind, the gas cycles down, and then when you don't get wind, the gas cycles up. Well, if you cycle the gas in your car down and up and down and up, we call that stop and go traffic. And do you get more or less fuel efficient in stop and go traffic? You get, <laughs> you, get less, you get less fuel efficient. And this is what happens with these things. So usually, they don't even save CO2 emissions, which I don't think should be a priority anyway. But it's, the fundamental problem is intermittency. And this has been a problem that people have tried to solve for 100 years. Um, but there's, there's no real evidence that it's solved in the way that you can have standalone affordable plants. Whereas there is evidence from before, I think, very, very misguided regulations were placed on nuclear by the environmentalist movement. That there's proof of this. There's evidence of this. They produce cheap energy. And so if you care about CO2, your first priority is, is stop attacking nuclear, not you, but uh, get people to stop attacking nuclear, stop attacking hydro, and become champions of them like Thank I am.
3: you. Thank you um the reason the reason and the only reason that uh fossil fuel is cheaper is because as i said earlier it's the only industry in the world that doesn't have to pay to put out its waste it gets to pour that's why economists have routinely described climate change as the greatest market failure of all time there's really no reason not to internalize that externality in the price of fossil fuel uh at which point it would become far far easier to move in these other directions the good news is and here Um, you know we have plenty of evidence now uh, that uh, 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 in fact we're learning how to cope in easily with some of these intermittency problems for things like wind Uh, The uh, uh, new data from the UK uh, published within the last six months shows that exactly the opposite of what Alex is saying, that wind is providing huge and real savings in CO2, not causing an increase in emissions from gas-fired power plants. That's what's going on in the real world, and it's going on because we get better at this stuff very fast. And we'd get better at it much faster if there wasn't an artificial monopoly preserved by the fact that the fossil fuel industry doesn't have to pay to put out its waste. That's why we need a movement to challenge them, and that's what we try to do at 350.org. Thank you. Uh,
1: One of the natures of these questions is that they have to be directed to one person. Uh, Three of them have have been directed toward uh, Mr. Epstein. Is there a questioner that has uh, a question uh, for Mr. McKibben? Could you please go ahead next
6: uh, my name is David Lewis uh, I have a my question is um, so y- you've gone to great lengths to to try to convince me that uh, wind and solar are are the future mm-hmm. um, you know the oil industries represent the oil industry represents uh, you know the great market failure uh, My question is that um, for example uh, wind the uh, windmills wind technology is not a new technology it's, it's old so prior to the oil industry prior to that ever you know coming about before all of the government regulations, prior to um, government subsidies to the oil industry, um, you know people did use windmills mm. um, My question is, why is it that you think that it was the oil industry that won out in the free market, rather than all of these windmills, people were using windmills and- Because I
3: said, as I said at the very beginning, there's something quite miraculous about fossil fuel. It's dense in energy, it's relatively easy to get at, it's easy to transport, it's pretty much magic stuff, it's just too bad that it's wrecking the planet, and so, what we've now, the reason we're seeing windmills and things resurge now is precisely because we understand that the cost of not doing it is so enormous that we'd better go in that direction. That's, you know, what it means when Lord Stern in the UK says that we face a 20% decline in world GDP if we let the planet warm up. That's what's concentrated people's minds. Um, if we got to the point where we put Now that we know the damage that carbon causes, where we put a price on carbon to reflect that, corrected that market failure, then that switch would happen all the faster.
2: Uh, Can I? Yes, I'd like to address this issue about market failure um, and externalities, which I I dealt with indirectly, but I just want to connect it uh, directly to what Bill said. So there's this idea that there's this enormous, enormous hidden cost, when you buy, say, gasoline at the pump. And so in addition to whatever you pay, you should pay X amount more. But this whole argument is based on the idea that fossil fuels are making our planet so bad that we have to make them 95% illegal. In his article in Rolling Stone, Bill said that the tax on fossil fuels should be enough that we need to keep all the carbon we need to in the ground. And his view is that you know, in a couple decades, that means 95% illegal. So who knows what that means? But $100 a gallon, $200 a gallon, that's what he's proposing. And yet what I, what I made clear by the big picture statistics, not focusing on things out of context, not speculative things, but the big picture facts about life is that fossil fuels have made the planet a better place for you and I and billions of people in the developing world to live. So, if anything, I think that you should, that there are, it's the hidden benefits that we're really ignoring about fossil fuels, about affordable energy. So, you know, maybe you should pay them money by that. And I don't think we owe them extra money, but I think the idea that we, have, that we should pay $100 or $200, or whatever, for gasoline in the name of a prediction made by climate prediction models that can't predict climate, it would make practical energy, as I said, practically illegal. And it makes no sense. It's not a market failure. It's a thinking failure.
1: Next question,
4: please. Uh, Hi, my name is Isaac, and my question is for Alex. Um, Alex, on your website, uh, it states that, uh, quote, so long as we embrace policies that protect property rights, including air and water rights, we protect industrial development and protect individuals from pollution. Um, So I'm curious to hear what uh, policies you would propose to protect property rights from uh, the externalities of fossil fuels and how those would measure up in economic climate where um, the full costs are born.
2: So actually, the the view of, of sort of there are two, there. I'll try to make this quick. With the pollution issue, kind of externalities and property rights are two different approaches. I, I believe in the property rights approach. And that means that you define something as a violation of a right. And as I mentioned earlier, it has to be in a technological context. You can't say fire should be illegal because it, it produces smoke. Um, so that's, it's, it's an issue of how do you define the rights. And there's a really, really rich tradition that started in the 19th century of people coming up with all sorts of common law to say, okay, you know, if you moved, if you were here first, someone can't move in and say, oh, I have a right to be free from your smoke. But if you were there first, someone can't just move in. And a lot of it is resolved through um, torts and the common law and things like that. So that's that's my basic belief, and then if you do that, what you have is the best of all worlds, because individuals um, are prevented as much as possible from contaminating one another, and they make these enormous, enormous uh, amounts of progress. And in a place like China or India, there's a lot of progress to be made in that field. What I don't agree with, though, is that the evidence, I don't agree that the evidence shows that CO2 falls in this category, because again, it's it's, Life is getting better as we emit more CO2. That is just, and in the aggregate, that is, a, that is a fact. Now, I'm not, theor- I have no sort of ideological opposition to that ever being true. If it turned out to be true, then we would have to take different measures. But as I said, that would mean liberating nuclear and hydro as soon as possible, liberate solar and wind and see what happens, but make sure to liberate nuclear and hydro.
3: So, the interesting way to think about that. Question, you know, is say you live in a country like the Maldives, um, which has a 5,000 year old human population, uh, but its odds of becoming a 5,100 year old culture are pretty slim because the highest point in the archipelago is about a meter and a half above sea level, and scientists are entirely clear that carbon in the atmosphere is raising the uh, level of the oceans, raising it fast. Um, uh, people in the Maldives have obviously done nothing to cause this problem, their use of fuel is minuscule, and yet their property, literally their property, is being taken away from them by people who are using immense amounts of fossil fuel. It strikes me that, as I said in my speech, that for a libertarian that strikes a very um, difficult question to answer, Um, um, how it is that we're allowed, uh, uh, because we like to drive around in SUVs, to take uh, 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 their property. The good news is that there's, we don't need to kind of answer it at that level and we don't need to answer it at a level of $100 gallon gasoline. What we need to do is go get electric vehicles if we have to use cars tall and power them from the solar panels on our roof at which case not a problem and you can go down to the GM, Ford, Toyota lot in uh, Durham today and get just that car and it'll work fine. Did you?
6: Is this on? Did you want us to answer questions or just ask them? Because I can a- I can answer the questions. the no, libertarian, fast. Fast. <laughs> libertarian position. You, you, can, you can ask questions. Okay.
1: Um, you, can, so, you can answer them afterwards.
6: Okay. Okay. Because I have an answer to the libertarian question. But um, it, it seems like this debate of wind and solar versus fossil fuels has been prominent for a long time. And as a free society, our society has chosen fossil fuels for the most part. And in places where they're prohibited, such as like when hurricanes come, like in New York or or New Jersey, it's chaos without them. And I think that, I think Alex has a great point when he says it's food for food, but it's also food for heat, it's food for cars, it's food for everything we do. So, and when we don't have those things, it is chaos. So what would you propose to, to take away first? Like what would you make illegal first? Like if
3: you think the government should be more involved I did not say that. I said the one thing, really the most important thing that the government could do is correct this powerful market failure. If you put up, if you're a solar installer and you're putting up solar panels, you have to clean up on the job site and you have to pay to put away the trash that you've created, okay? But if you're a fossil fuel company, you don't. You get to pour the carbon into the atmosphere for free. And I've given you about 15 powerful reasons for why that's a very bad idea, including the fact that it's creating the conditions of chaos that you described. at the position we're in at the moment, that's exactly right. That's what happened. That's why we need to make this transition and do it as quickly as possible. And delaying it and deciding that we should just go on like we are for another 10 or 20 or 30 years because it's more convenient for us is a very serious mistake. Uh, <clears> can, can,
6: I, can I say that's not uh, a very specific uh, answer? Like, I, I meant like, like like there's a bridge s- that has to Excuse get, me, could you, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, to kind of address where I think the questioner might be coming from, it's, I don't think it's constructive if you're talking about a very, very specific prohibition on human life. Emily, we should not be free to use fossil fuels going forward. And again, I didn't come up with the number 95%. Bill gave the number 95%. No,
3: actually, I give the number 80% in that uh, in, you, in
2: your book, Earth, you give
3: 95%.
2: Mm. Um, anyway... 80% is, is, I mean, scares me almost, almost as much. So there's just this issue of, of what is going to specifically happen as your practical sources of energy get taken away. So as the factories that can now run cheaply and have just opened up in the U.S. due to cheap natural gas, as, say, fracking gets banned, which Bill is in favor of banning it, what's going to happen as your price of oil goes up? What's going to happen as your price of food goes up? What, what, what good is it going to do you that someone in a room um, gave some prediction about how all of these things would be magically solved in a way they had never been done before that just conveniently happened when you took away the basic solution, which is a fun, abundant, affordable energy? What I'm, I'm, my goal here tonight is just to alert you to a value whose freedom is being attacked. I have no particular interest in fossil fuels except in my interest in energy, that we need energy to live, and we need this form for a long time to come. That's why I emphasize nuclear, hydro. Um, What I just want to keep saying is that 80 95%, Bill is not taking seriously the implications of what he's saying, and he's not taking seriously, he's not really being upfront with how much this would ruin your life, what it would mean concretely. and it would ruin your life, but much more quickly it's going to ruin the people uh, on the margin. And as for the Maldives, uh, I don't think the evidence is what Bill says it is. But in any case, they need to industrialize too.
3: They have a very difficult time industrializing when they're underwater. One of the not, not um, one in, of the problems. The, the Netherlands is underwater. The Netherlands is underwater, by the way. I would like to thank
1: both of you for being so provocative and bringing such a wonderful spirit of debate and conversation to our university and thank all of you for coming.
2: All
0: right. So that is the end of the McKibben versus Epstein debate. Uh, maybe there will be another one at some point in the future, I have no idea, definitely you're gonna hear another debate with me and someone else next week. Uh, I definitely hope to do more of these every time I learn more about the content, I learn more about debating how to make it as constructive as possible for the audience. So if you know of any debate opportunities, if you wanna have me debate someone, alex at alexepstein.com, definitely give me a shot. I wanna make a comment about debating methodology. And one of the things that I dislike about debating, which is that it seems that there's a certain amount of rhetorical power in just completely pretending that the other person hasn't said what they have said. And I have to admit, it, it was it was frustrating to a certain extent being on the stage and, and really trying to emphasize, for example, this issue of Climate danger has gone down. I showed the graph. Uh, I made that made it clear multiple times. I referenced it multiple times, and on no occasion did Bill McKibben acknowledge that. In fact, this isn't in this last segment, but in the opening segment, he he distorted it. I don't know deliberately, but he should have been listening more carefully. If he didn't, he he. I had said climate danger went down. Climate really went down, and he said, "Oh, I already said that that life expectancy went up." under fossil fuels, which he then said is the fuel of the past, even though it's at record usages now. But in any case, that's the kind of thing where it's, as a listener, we want to try to follow, okay, what are what are the big points? What, As I said before, what is the conclusion? Then what are the big arguments? And then how does the other person respond to the, to the other's big arguments? And my, my two big arguments were, uh, or I guess my my three big arguments were, one, that, uh, you know, that fossil fuels have been tremendously, and not have been, just have been, but are to this day tremendously beneficial to human life. Two, that that extends to the climate, that climate safety has gone way, way up thanks to cheap, plentiful, reliable uh, energy. And then the third is that, that McKibben advocates a goal of destroying these fossil fuels that would be suicidal and for my first one his response was for the point that it, of its benefit to human life he tried to portray this as a thing of the past even though there was no evidence given uh that this that this beneficial uh, beneficent effect could be replaced anytime soon um, with the second one he just never acknowledged it and for the third one the extent of his acknowledging it was at one point when i mentioned 95% illegal for i don't know how many the the must have been at least the eighth time, he looked up and said, I think I said it was 80%. And in that, I had referenced already his book. So there, there's this issue of not even listening. It's either it's some combination of not listening or not acknowledging. Now, for the purpose of analyzing a debate, the important part is that it was not acknowledged. But one of the things I think that, that leads to a lot of frustration on the part of people watching these debates is that the people simply don't acknowledge the other's argument. It's a lot easier to just dodge it and then just to keep making the same point over and over and over. And now, interestingly enough, it's another rhetorical point to claim that the person hasn't acknowledged your argument, even if they have. And that was another thing that I felt like McKibben did. You can judge for yourself. But part of his methodology is, for instance, when he made these these 15 points, which we're going to devote a whole show to because I think there's a lot more to say than I said in this debate... But I, I, my answer to that was, look, the, the big picture of this issue, you're claiming climate has gotten more dangerous. If we look at the big picture, it's obviously gotten much safer. There's obviously something wrong with what you're doing. And I'm arguing you're misrepresenting those studies. You're taking it out of context. But, but what, your conclusion can't be right because it completely contradicts the big picture. And again, he didn't acknowledge that. But not only did he not acknowledge that, he didn't acknowledge that it was an argument. Not just it was a wrong argument, but that it didn't acknowledge it was an argument. What, again, what's going on on the part of the debater, you could argue there's some extent to which you can argue, well, the person is evading it, or you can argue that the person's method of mental functioning only, only registers things that uh, are, are what he's been trained to think about. So since McKibben has never faced the climate danger argument, it doesn't even register in his mind. But either way, from 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 a listener standpoint, it unfortunately diminishes the experience greatly to not to not get those kinds of uh, to not get that kind of engagement. And I just have to say, as a participant, I would you know I'm I'm still looking forward to the debate when we really really get engagement. One one thing that's really fun about this show is when I have guests, whether they agree or disagree, whatever if we disagree we get into it and we we there's no there's no dodging things there's no playing to the audience uh, we go after it so I, I would rather lose a debate where it was all the issues were engaged and i just didn't have the right answer i didn't i wasn't clear or whatever maybe i was just wrong i would rather have that happen than have the more typical kind of debate where you know each person is saying his thing, and at least one person isn't engaging uh, the other now i I did my best to um, engage and refute what Bill said. He said a lot of things. he deliberately I think overwhelmed people with a lot of things, and that's part of why I want to devote a whole episode to the opening because i I feel like there's a there um, the way in which I addressed that in the debate made some good points, but I think there are a lot more good points to be made and I think they can be made more clearly. And I think it'll be beneficial to everyone to, to to go in depth on those things, which I didn't have time to do in the debate, but to look at those issues and to see how it's possible for something to be taken out of context and ultimately what it means for something to be taken out of context. That's one of the most important ideas in thinking and in, in, in wrong thinking is an idea being taken out of context or a fact being taken out of context, it, but it's a very rich idea that is known. It's known to be a problem, but I think there's a lot of dimensions to it that will be helpful to explore. So that's by way of motivating you for next show. But for now, I hope you I hope you enjoyed the debate. I hope you learned something, and uh, rest assured that that, that debate. I think it's probably only 40, I only talked for 40, 45 minutes total, but we spent a lot of time developing material, so there's going to be a lot more material on fossil fuels, uh, particularly on science, on climate science going forward, and really, really excited to share that with you, starting with next episode, which is going to be on Bill McKibben's discussion of climate science and how to think about all the issues that he raised. That's all I have for this time, so... I will talk to all of you next time. As always, if you want to contact me, love mail, hate mail, email to alex at alexepstein.com. Go to facebook.com slash thepursuitofenergy or for our blog, go to industrialprogress.net. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
3: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.